You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we pray now that you would help us to set aside all distractions. And Father, as we dig into Philippians 3, Lord, we may our hearts be open to seeing, uh, Lord, that you are far greater than anything that this world can offer. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we begin, I, I, I do have to confess that this is my favorite passage of Scripture, so that kind of pushed me in the direction of preaching this text. So just throwing that out there. So hopefully you enjoyed as well. Philippians 3. Well, the other, the other day I was reading an article, and it was entitled, Common Misconceptions of Christianity. And here are a few of those misconceptions. Some people out there in the world, as maybe hopefully not here in the congregation, believe this about Christianity. That Christianity is a blind faith. That it lacks evidence to prove that it's true. Some believe that Christianity teaches that there are many ways to heaven and many paths to God. I thought that one was pretty interesting. Christianity, Christ, you would think that they would make sense that Jesus is the only way. Another misconception is that once we become a Christian, being saved by God's gift of grace, it does not matter what we do. It's another misconception. It continues and he says, the article says this, another one, it, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's another misconception. But he ends acknowledging two of these misconceptions, and these are two that are going to tie into our sermon. He said, there are some out there in the world, as maybe in the church as well, that think that Christianity is all about good works. That we can get to heaven based on our good works. Another misconception that kind of goes well with that last one was this, that Christianity is a laundry list of things to do. The author concludes by stating this, No matter how many ways we try to state our salvation is not based on good works, nor is it based on the things that we do, it does not seem to sink in. Even many Christians, when asked how we get to heaven, will answer something like, I always try to be a good person. But this is an incorrect response and shows great misunderstanding of the Christian message. So in examining this article and how it relates to Philippians 3, I can gather two main points out of this. Is one, that there are people that truly do believe that we can earn our salvation. And that there are some who claim to be believers, and that they still believe that we can earn our salvation. So we have those who are outside the church that believe we can earn our salvation, and we even have those who are in the church that still believe we can earn 
our salvation. Now, why have we struggled with understanding this? We have had the gospel for thousands of years. We have had pastors who teach and model for us the gospel, and yet we still struggle to understand that our salvation does not come by what we do. I think in looking at this article and tying it to the passage, is that we can come away with three main culprits to why we struggle with this issue. One, we have been misled. Two, we have our own heart issues that push against an idea of salvation by grace alone. And finally, we've lacked an example or someone to model in our life what the message really is. So if you're taking notes from me this morning, these are our three points, and it's at the top. Exhortation, radicalization, and imitation. So let's begin in verse 1. Paul starts off by reminding the Philippians that he, of, of what he's about to address. And what he's about to tell them is nothing new. He said, the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So within the small phrase, we see that what Paul is going to do in the next 21 verses is that he is going to, one, discuss an issue that is not new to the Philippians. They know about this issue. They are aware of it. And two, that Paul is using this opportunity in his letter to reinforce to the Philippians or to encourage the Philippians to hold true their understanding of the gospel. I love what Paul does at the end of verse 1 when he says that is safe for you. He's reminding them of something they are already aware of. He's reinforcing them what they need to remind themselves of, what they need to reinforce themselves of regarding the gospel. Because in doing that, it's going to keep them safe. What is going to keep you safe, Philippians? It's the gospel. He's informing the Philippians that the knowledge of the gospel will keep you safe from those who are seeking to devour you. And so at the very beginning, he starts off. Church, the only thing, one of the only things that can keep you safe from being devoured is the gospel. Well, who's going to devour us? And that leads us into verse 2. Those who seek to cause us harm are those that he refers to as the dogs. Those who are the evildoers. Those who mutilate, mutilate the flesh. All three of these terms carry a negative connotation with them. For a dog in Hebrew literature is often referred to as an unclean. He's an unholy animal. And we see in Psalms over and over, when you see the term evildoers, they refer to as people who work iniquity. They're enemies 
of the gospel. Someone who seek to work deceitfully, to creep in, to cause the people to turn away. And finally, the last phrase he uses here is those who mutilate the flesh. And then we know what this is tied to. This is tied to circumcision, right? Now, it's reason that we highlight these terms because what it draws us to is, is it, it, it sends off alarms of who the people, who these people are that are coming into the church. They are the Judaizers. They're the ones who are sneaking in. They are the evildoers, the dogs, the ones who mutilate the flesh. They are the ones who are trying to sneak in to disrupt the church. But why? Why are they so dangerous to the church? Why are they so dangerous to the church at Philippi? Why are they dangerous today to our church? Well, if you spend any time in the New Testament, you will see that this is not the first time that the Judaizers have come up. If you can recall in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Paul writes to them, warning them not to be blinded by the message of the Judaizers. Look at what he says in chapter 3 of Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has, who, have, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the faith? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The whole passage of Galatians 3 is Paul dealing with foolish Galatians who have been bewitched by the Judaizers. People who have come in claiming to be believers, but yet adding something else to their faith. But, but what makes them a pain in the neck for the church? What makes this group so difficult to work with? Is that they come in and they say that your faith is, is, is good. You need to have faith in Jesus. But let me add on a few little hoops and hurdles for you to jump through. To run over. If you expect to be a child of God, you have to do this as well. Profess faith, but do this on top of it. And in the case of the church at Philippi, as well as the church in Galatia, we see that the work or this addition to the faith for the Judaizers is circumcision. And we see also that he refers to other works of the flesh. Well, what are some other works of the flesh that Paul is referring to here? Well, look at what he says in verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6 kind of gives us an idea of what some of these works of the flesh might be. He starts off by stressing his special privileges as being an Israelite. He was what? Circumcised on the eighth day. 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's an important tribe. You know, before the kingdoms were about to separate, there was only two tribes that stuck with the line of Solomon, Judah and Benjamin. That's a significant tribe. So, special privilege, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? That there was no mixture. That he's fully Hebrew all the way through. There's, there's no Gentile blood mixed in. If you're a fan of Harry Potter, he's not a muggle. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. But not only was he special due to the privileges, he goes on and he talks about how he was faultless. Zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. So Paul then was a perfect example of what a Judaizer was. Someone who not only put faith in Christ, but also he was adding more things to his faith before he became to faith. Sorry. So before he came to faith, he was a practicing Judaizer. He, special privilege, who he was, special status. He was an Israelite of all Israelites. He was, he was close to God because of his circumcision. But not only that, he was special and he was great and he was blameless because he was faithful to the law. He could boast. He could boast in his status. He could boast in his works. So Paul is aware of this group of people trying to infiltrate the church. Why? Because he was one of them. He was one of them. Now, what does this have to do with us? I don't sense that there's Judaizers coming to the church today that are asking us that we have to circumcise nor do I think there are people coming in telling us that there's, our faith in Christ is enough, but we also have some other hoops we have to jump through. Nor do I think heresy is sneaking into the congregation by wolves in sheep clothing. But what I do think when we look at these first few verses is this, is that we have to be diligent and aware of the tendencies of our heart to fall back into our self-justification, our pride, as well as our propensity to lean on our own status. What do I mean by that? Is that at the heart of the Judaizers was this idea of pride. Look at me. At the heart of the Judaizer Judaizer was self-justification. I can do this. At the heart of a Judaizer was doing, 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 and doing, and doing in order to gain God's favor. And that's our heart. If we're not aware, if we're not diligent, we will fall back to that. Because that's what we're prone to do. I think sometimes we even allow our traditions to provoke pride and self-righteousness within us. 
to become a barrier in how we are to love our neighbor. But we've always done things this way that can keep us from loving our neighbor. And in some degree, we've allowed them, our traditions, to guide our understanding of Scripture instead of letting Scripture guide our understanding of our traditions. And if we are not attentive to this, we will become just like the Judaizers. Do this, act like this, wear this, talk like this, and if you do that, then you are a true believer. So we have to be diligent and we have to be aware not to fall into that same trap that the Judaizers were leading them. Paul then takes a shift here and he kind of moves away from his self or his past, talking about his past. And he goes into talking about what, free, what has freed him from this past life of self-righteousness. What has freed him from this prideful lifestyle. And it's the same thing that frees us from our prideful lifestyle and our self-righteousness and our, uh, and, our, and our propensity to lean on our status of where we are. And that is faith in Christ. When I was touring around with the idea for the title of this sermon, which I must confess to you, Coming up with the title of the sermon is more difficult than actually writing the sermon. I, there's, I couldn't think of a word to, that, would, that would match this. I, I, I know I stress Peggy out because I tend to wait to the very last moment when the bulletin is about to go out to come up with a title. But I, the only term that I could, could come up with that would kind of identify verses 7 all the way down to the end of verse 11 was radical. And I must confess, I didn't come up with that. I grabbed it from another place. Um, So radical is not a term that I came up with. I wish I could claim that. But I thought radical, oh, this is it. that is a perfect term to define what's taken place between verses 6 and verse 7. Because there had to have been a radical change from Paul to go to what he once was as a Judaizer, self-righteous, prideful, claiming all the special privileges as being a part of Israelite to boasting of nothing except Christ there had to have been something radical to happen. There had to have been a radical change to turn his world completely upside down. I mean, just look at what he says in verses 7, to, seven and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss compared, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Had to have been a radical change there. And I love his play on the terms gain and loss. He thought he gained salvation through his special status and his self-righteousness. But in the end, they brought him nothing. Instead, it took faith in Christ Jesus that brought him everything. Justification, sanctification, and eventually glorification. Faith in Christ, he gained everything in him. 
Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to see the transformation from who Paul once was? At the end of verse 6, to how his thinking has completely changed in verse 7. Do you see how radical this change really is? You can go to Acts 9 and see his conversion experience from the road to Damascus. You get a taste of it, but when you come to Philippians 3, you get the whole meal of what actually took place on that road. But not only is Paul gaining Christ, seeing that Christ is significant in this passage, but he's also resting in, in the knowledge of Christ as well. He's growing to know Christ more. He not only wants to claim that Christ is enough, but he wants to grow in the knowledge of Christ. In his commentary on this, O'Brien says this, to know God was regarded as a paramount importance and meant to be a close personal relationship with him. In Philippians 3, 8, Paul is speaking about his own personal relationship with Christ, something that is absolutely basic and fundamental to his being a Christian. It includes the experience of being loved by him and loving him in return. So not only is Paul able to say, I'm losing everything to gain Christ, but in gaining Christ, I'm gaining in the knowledge of Christ. In other words, I'm in a personal relationship with Christ where he is loving me and I am loving him. Before he sought to justify his place in God's family by his status, by his work, and now he's accepted into God's family and able to have a personal relationship with Christ because of Christ's status and the work of and Christ's work. That's a radical change. But a radical transformation, a radical transformed life doesn't stop there for Paul. Just forsaking the previous life does not automatically make us perfect or sanctified, as we see in verse 12. In other words, just because he has made that shift towards trusting in his righteousness, trusting in being an Israelite, trusting in the things that the Judaizers were trusting in, and and placing his gain in Christ Jesus, and having that relationship with Christ, there's there's no automatic guarantee of, of perfection or total sanctification. But what he does is he says that even though I'm not perfected, and even though I have not been sanctified, I press on. I press on to the one who has called me his. I press on to the one who is making me more like him each day. See, part of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ is that we have a daily calling of, to grow and to mature in our faith. In this, Paul, in this passage, Paul uses his personal story of salvation to emphasize to others their need to press on, to just be like him, to reach the goal of knowing Christ Jesus fully. And to do that, 
We must lay aside all hindrances. Look at what he says here in verses 12 and 13. Oh, and 14 as well. Even though we are in a personal relationship with Christ Jesus for what Christ has done, we are not perfected. Paul is not perfected, so definitely we are not perfected. So what do we do? We continue to press on towards Christ. We run the race towards him. And we forget what lies behind. We set aside the rubbish that used to hinder us. We set aside our good works. We set aside our pride. We set aside our self-righteousness all so that we can run and press on to Christ Jesus. That is what Paul is saying. I've never been much of a runner. You can talk to Daryl about this. I cannot tell you how many times he's asked me to work out with him. But even when I was in shape, which was probably elementary school, I hated to... I hated to run. But there's this one year when we were required to participate in the presidential fitness test. I don't know if you remember that. I completed the monkey bars. I did okay on the push-ups. I barely survived the chin-ups. Then came the running portion of the test. And I tell you, this is probably one of the most painful memories of my life. Because I labored and labored and labored to succeed at running that race. And in the end, I was given this small letter certificate saying that I passed or I survived the presidential fitness test. That's all I received for all of that laboring. But I tell you this because I think it fits well with the story because it emphasizes what Paul is trying to do here in in these verses is that as people radically transformed by Christ, we are called to press on. We're called to press on and to receive our prize, which is in him. We have not perfected the race. We will, even, we will stumble through the race. But we continue on, resting not in our abilities, not in our good works, not in our pride, not in our self-righteousness, but resting in Christ. We press on. But as we press on, Paul tells us this, that we model what pressing on looks like for others. For Paul, pressing on towards Christ is the response of one who has been changed. And one of the benefits of growing in faith, of pressing on, is that we have the opportunity to model for others within the covenant community what pressing on looks like. What running the race looks like. Paul mentions it here in verse 17 when he writes, Brothers, join me in imitating me. Join, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What does he mean through all of this? Where he means this. When he talks of imitating, 
he's not stressing a state of perfection. Because we've already established that Paul is not perfect. Remember when he talked about in verse 12 and he says, not that I've already obtained this, I've not already obtained complete sanctification or nor have I obtained glorification. So when he's saying imitate me, he's not saying be perfect. Because then Paul would be going contrary to what he, he's not perfect. But what he is saying is that model him and imitate his conduct and how he lives in relation to others, believers and non-believers. Because what he's, what he's doing here is he's tying it to what he, mentioned, what he states in Corinthians 11, 1, when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So when he says, imitate me, he says, imitate Christ. Be Christ. With the understanding that you're not perfect. His, our conduct, our lifestyle, should match that of Christ. And that's what qualifies us to be imitated. You know, sometimes I think... As Christians, we can get kind of confused or mixed up in this idea of discipling others. And we think when we disciple someone that we have to be perfect in discipling them. And we have to be on our, our toes 24-7, in which we do. We can be wrong. I'm not speaking against that. But if we are in Christ Jesus, and we are called to imitate him, then when we imitate him, there's an understanding that we will fail in imitating him. But we strive to imitate him. We strive to imitate him in our conduct, in our words, in how we disciple, and how we mentor Because we, a lot of times, are Jesus to the world. Therefore, that's why we're called to imitate him. But why does he tell the Philippians to imitate him? He tells them to imitate, he asks the Philippians to imitate himself because First of all, in imitating Paul, they're no longer boasting in themselves, nor are they boasting in Paul, but they're boasting in Christ. Going back to imitating, when we imitate, we imitate, when we imitate Paul, we imitate Christ. When we model Paul, we model Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 31 speaks to this when Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as believers, we're called to conduct our lives in the manner the Christ would want us to. And in doing that, we're glorifying, we're boasting in God. We're boasting in him. So first of all, Paul is encouraging them to imitate him, to, to model their life after him, because in doing that, they're boasting in Christ. Second, he's asking them to model their life after him, because in, Paul is emphasizing 
Paul is stressing that, it, that he has experience with the Judaizers. In other words, Philippians, if you want to know how to combat the Judaizers, look at me. Look at my life. Look at my conduct. Look at what I did against them. Model the way you interact with them after me. We see this in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ. Those are the Judaizers. So if you model, if we model after Paul, then we would know how to combat those that Paul's against. And finally, we see that Paul's call to imitate him is a pattern for us. He's laying out a pattern for us, covenant, that we are called to model Christ to others. Within the congregation, as well as outside. We are called to be Christ to others. And I apologize, I did not ask permission for this next illustration beforehand. But I'm sure he would, he will forgive me. Because it speaks to this, about whole, the modeling and, and all that. My son, who is seven, he is at that stage where he loves everything that I love. And if you know me, if you spend time with me, you know that I love sports. We're not going to talk about Georgia. But I love sports. I love baseball. I love watching football. And every time a game comes on, he comes up to me and he asks me, Dad, who are we cheering for? I was like, well, we, you know, we're, cheering, we're cheering for Georgia. Okay, D- Dad, who are we cheering against? Well, um, we, don't, we, we like none of the teams, so <laughs> just pick one. <laughs> but he's beginning to model his likes and his dislikes off of mine. I love that. He knows what I like. He knows the teams that I love. He knows what I enjoy doing. And he's modeling his life after mine. But let's expand that a little more. And think. When people look at our lives, do our lives display a life that should be modeled? Parents, myself included, do you model your kids Christ? Do you model Christ for them? Children, youth, hear me out. Do you model Christ for your parents? Husbands, wives, grandparents, siblings, do you model Christ before your loved ones? Paul encourages us here to imitate him because in imitating him, we imitate Christ. We model Christ. So what then does all of this mean for us? I confess this is a very lengthy passage. Again, because it's my favorite, I chose to preach from it. And a lot of things you can gain from it. 
But what can we take away from all 21 verses? We take away two things. Or we can approach it two ways. One, we can approach this passage with grateful hearts. Joyful. Praising God for what Christ has accomplished for us. And see the challenge to continue by God's grace to lay aside all the things that hinder us. Our good works, our pride, our selfishness, our tradition, all things to know Christ more. That's one approach. Second, we can approach this text, which I'm sure maybe some are here in this room, not quite sure what all's taken place. Not quite sure what this radical transformation is. We've talked about the radical transformation, about Paul going from being a Judaizer, being to one who uh, preached and taught and lived by obedience to the law, And now he has a complete transformation to now where he's boasting in Christ and not in his works. We've talked about that transformation, but it might not make sense. It's new to you. And so you approach this text with some confusion. What's taking place? What's going on? Or maybe you approach this text and you're you're pushing back against it. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I take a lot of comfort in my works. I love boasting in myself. I I love that I'm great at what I'm doing and what I do. Why do I need to sacrifice that? Why do I need to consider that a loss? I love my traditions I love doing the things that we've always done, even if they speak, even if they're contrary to Scripture. I love them. Why change them? If it was good for Paul and Silas, it was good enough for me, right? Why change them? Well, maybe this idea of losing everything for the sake of Christ is just too costly. You don't want to give it up. Maybe you're afraid of what your friends would think if you do. Give it up. Maybe you're afraid of what your parents might think if you give it up. Or what your wife or your husband or your co-worker might think if you gave up everything to be in a personal relationship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, hear me out. If this is you, Cast all your questions and concerns on Christ, and I promise you, he will bury them. You're not sure if you can give it up? Just run to Jesus. Help me, help me, Jesus, give them up. Help me to give up my pride. Help me to give up my selfishness. Help me to give up my traditions. Help me to give up the things that are hindering me from having a relationship with you. Help me. In these last words, let them be words of encouragement to you. If you were to sum this up with this question, 
of how Paul was able to conclude that everything was rubbish in the light of Christ. You know why he was able to consider everything a loss for Christ? Because Christ was everything to him. Is Christ everything to you? Let's pray. Father, it's difficult sometimes to examine our lives and see the things that we are holding on to and not willing to give up. Even things that know that hinder us from having a personal relationship with you. Whether it's our works or our pride, our selfishness, maybe a sin. But Father, in looking at this passage over and over and over again, Paul gives us a glimpse that Christ was everything to him. Lord, help us to see that Christ is everything for us. Let him be everything to us. For we praise in his name. Amen.